Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to the Comrade Cast. And today, we are going to have a three hour episode on that Titanic submarine. No, we're not actually going to do that. In fact, we're only going to talk very briefly about it because what I came away from this whole submarine incident really wanting to play Barrow Trauma. That was my big takeaway from this whole thing. If you guys don't know, Barrow Trauma, it's a game on Steam. You pilot a submarine through this alien world and all these horrific monsters try and attack you. And of course, if you exit the submarine without the appropriate equipment or, ha or go too deep, you will suffer a pressurized implosion, which will cause your bones to be cracked and destroyed underneath the pressure, which is where the term barrow trauma comes from. And probably what the individuals on that Titanic sub experienced themselves. If you wanted to say it in maybe a more polite and sensitive manner, you might say something like, their insides and their outsides reversed position. Sorry, my dark sense of humor is coming into play once again. I do apologize, but I'm sure part of the reason why that story enthralled me as it did many of you is the thought of being crushed in an implosion in a submarine a few kilometers beneath the waves is a terrifying thought which haunts you constantly when you close your eyes. But no, today we will not be spending a bunch of time talking about the submarine. No, today what we're going to be spending a bunch of time talking about is pride. And as June draws to a close, I have been wanting to get a Pride-themed episode out for the Comrade cast. And as I was building talking points and doing research and coming up with what I was going to say, I just kept coming back to one central question I had in my head over and over and over again, which is, why do conservatives hate Pride so much? I just can't fathom the overwhelming emotion that they have and the overwhelming hatred they have for this month. Here in Berta, there are some places where you go and you wear a pride flag and people will lose their freaking minds. It's crazy. They'll turn red and like vibrate and froth at the mouth and it's like they got rabies, the whole nine yards. It's pretty funny, actually, if it weren't motivated by such a despicable hatred. And I just don't get the hatred. It just doesn't make any sense at all. And this hatred really baffles me for two main reasons. The first off being, of course, it's not your life. Why do you care? Leave this person alone. Let them do what they want. Who cares? So there's that whole obvious angle to it. But not only that, this hatred and this, this anti-LGBTQ crusade that conservatives have going on violates their very own fundamental ideology. And that to me has always... And that to me has been a huge point of confusion because you basically have to violate your own internal principles in order to justify your hatred. There's another reason why I wanted to do this episode beyond just trying to examining this illogical and mind-baffling hatred. Another reason that I wanted to do this episode is to actually take some time, and we've done this before, and that is really push back on this sort of they're trying to trans the kids conspiracy theory that conservatives are trying to push. I find it particularly vile, and particularly disgusting. The reason being that I myself am a parent. And part of the way that they propagate this conspiracy is by touching buttons and sensitive points in any parent's emotional state by lying to people 
and getting their emotions wild up. And then once they get their emotions wild up, it gets to the point where people aren't thinking clearly and they don't see reality clearly. So for me, as a parent, I think it is very important for me to stand up and say, no, we don't buy this bullshit. We're not scared of this crap. They're not trying to trans the kids. This is a conspiracy theory on par with flat eartherism or 9-11 trutherism. And you can take your bullshit out of here. If there's anyone I don't want around my kids, it would be these guys. But before we kind of get into that, I want to wheel back a little bit and talk about how a lot of this hatred and rhetoric from the right violates their own ideological precepts. So let's go back here to 2016. And I'm sure you guys remember this picture here. This is a very famous picture from the 2016 campaign. Trump holding up a rainbow flag that said LGBTs. And I think that is an S there. Looks like a five, but I'm pretty sure that's an S for Trump becoming the first Republican candidate to ever hold a rainbow flag and come out in support of gay marriage and the LGBT plus community in general. However, now, eight years later, it's very clear that the conservatives and Donald Trump as a political sort of avatar has moved very, very, very far away from this accepting sentiment. But here's the thing, guys, like looking back with hindsight and where we are now, I think this moment where Trump holds up the rainbow flag, the pride flag, is actually the high watermark for conservatives in terms of overall support from the general public they'll probably ever get. Because at the time, I remember seeing this and I started to get a little worried because there's a recipe, I think, for conservatives in general and the Republicans in the United States to continue to have political success and to revitalize their political movement. I am not going to tell you what I think that is because I don't want to give good advice, I think, to people who don't need it and probably don't want it anyway. But what I will say is that acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community is a part of that winning political recipe for conservatives. And them jettisoning that in the last eight years or so makes them significantly less palatable to a vast swath of independent voters. And the reason for that being is because in the vast majority of Western countries, including the United States, people have grown far more accepting of LGBTQ plus rights, growing far more accepting of gay people, of trans people. What has happened, though, is as society's default has become neutral goodwill towards gay people, towards trans people, those who are hostile towards them have gotten more and more desperate and gotten louder and louder as they see the political headwinds turning against them. All of this is to say that while Republicans are causing a ton of damage with their current rhetoric and their current policies, the fact of the matter is, is that what they are doing is destroying any hope of them governing, at least on a sort of a, a national level, probably for the rest of our lifetimes. Of course, there are always going to be places, southern states, that are going to remain staunchly Republican for quite some time. The rest of the country has definitely moved far and away beyond this issue 
And for the vast majority of people, honestly, it doesn't register in their minds very much. While it is doing a lot of damage to people, it is bad politics. And in the long term, I definitely think that it will damage the Republican Party, probably beyond repair. And here's my hot take of the episode. If people in Western countries are faced with two candidates, one who is extremely woke and another who is extremely socially conservative, people are going to go with the woke candidate nine times out of 10, maybe 99 times out of 100. Wokeness only actually starts to become an issue in independent voters' minds when there aren't crazy social conservative issues that people on the left can highlight over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. If you're going to compare crazy to crazy, social conservatism will always look crazier than wokeness. Always. Like someone like Matt Walsh thinks that he is a common sense person, but in reality, the majority of the population see him and look at him as a lunatic. And speaking of old Matty boy, as much as I genuinely despise that man and everything he stands for, in a strategic overview sense, it's good for the left politically that he be as high up a figurehead on the right as he possibly can be. And the reason for that being is that the man is openly an extremist. There's absolutely no argument that you can make that he isn't a goose stepper. The guy openly says he's a fascist. He openly believes he's a goose stepper. And if that guy had his way, he would restrict the freedoms in society to ridiculous authoritarian levels. And having a person as extreme as that represent your political opponent is a good thing in the long term because his extremism will drive people away from the right. And it's already happening. So if conservatives were smart in a political sense, they would adopt a much more live and let live attitude. And the reason for that being is because the average person has absolutely no inclination to go out and harass gay people or trans people. These issues are not the political prism from which they view the world. This includes, of course, from a more sort of you know, pro-pride, pro-LGBTQ plus perspective. These people aren't coming to Pride Month. They're not coming to the parades. They're not coming to events. But at the same time, pride, hatred, isn't on their top of mind, right? They're not out there vandalizing fried flags. They're not out there screaming at Target employees. They're not out there harassing little girls at baseball games. Normal people are pushing back, and when they see that kind of stuff happen, they push back against it. The people who are like that are the terminally online people, and they look and they seem like they are a larger segment of the population than they are, particularly if you're online, because they are terminally online. That's the point. They're always online. So it's going to seem like they're always there. They're always around. It's always going to seem like there are more of them than there actually are. So ultimately, conservatives just can't help themselves. Their hatred of trans people is so much that they will have to adapt politically damaging propositions in order to enact it. But as alluded to before, not only do conservatives make politically stupid maneuvers because they have so much hatred in their heart, 
they also violate their own ideological precepts. And initially I was going to go through and go to every conservative politician's websites. We'd go to Mike Pence, we'd go to Trump's campaign, and I'm sure they would put freedom. Freedom is the most important thing, the most valuable thing. And of course, freedom is extremely important. To me, freedom is one of my most important values and a value that I cherish very deeply. For me, though, I would say the way society is currently arrayed is that it undercuts freedom at every turn, but that's for a different point. The point here is that individual freedom specifically for conservatives, which is your right to make your own choices, your right to pursue your own happiness and live your life on your terms, that is what we believe as conservatives. It is one of our fundamental values. So obviously the point was to show, you know, how much they talk about freedom. It's their central tenet if you effectively believe the talking points. But instead, I want to turn to AI to help me out on this one. All right there, chat GBT, give me your wisdom. This is the 21st century magic eight ball. Okay, so I'm just gonna read this out because there are people listening now. I have to remember that. It's not always in video format. So we are asking the great wise machine. We say, oh, great wise machine, please impart your wisdom onto me. Should be onto us. Sorry, guys. Given your access to the vast banks of knowledge, would you estimate the most important value in the conservative political movement is freedom? Let us see what ChatGBT says. Wow, it's really, he's it's really going to town on this one. As AI language models, I don't process personal wisdom or opinions, but I can share information and insights. The importance of political values, <laughs> the importance of values of political movement can vary by time, place, and context. Yes, I get it. However, historically, the conservative political movement, especially in Western democracies, has placed high value on freedom, among other values. In the United States, for example, conservatism is often associated with values such as limited government, individual liberty, free markets, and a belief in the importance of traditional institutions and practices. I would say that for conservatives, they would say that freedom is the most important to them. And obviously anyone is free to chime in and tell me if I'm wrong in that one. But I would think that for conservatives, freedom is their most important political value. And it's interesting here because it has a difference between European conservatism and conservatism in the United States. Because in Europe, it mentioned specifically conservatism has been historically associated with the preservation of tradition, social order and national sovereignty. And that's a, actually a very important distinction and, and pretty interesting. And I think most people don't really think about that, which is that in the United States, these notions like we talk about, like individual liberty and freedom aren't so much embedded in European conservative movements. It's like a distinctly American strain of political thought. In any case, let me move on here for you guys. Moreover, political movements evolve over time. While in some freedom is an important value within many strands of conservatism, it is not the only value and its significance can vary based on factors including geography, historical context, and individual beliefs. Well, I actually thank the AI for this answer because it did definitely impart, it did definitely impart onto me that when we associate conservatism with individual liberty and that notion, it is a distinctly American notion of conservatism, not a European one. But I want to ask this uh, one last thing before we move on out. One of the things I've done is ponied up for the advanced version of this chat GBT. This is not obviously right now, but beforehand, 
And let's test some of its internet browsing capabilities right on the fly here. So let me read to you what I've asked it to do. Can you do a quick cross-section of websites on major conservative politicians? Can you tell me which percentage of them mention freedom? What percentage of them specifically mention freedom as their top value? And how many times on average the word freedom appears in on their websites? Let's see what we have here. What can you do for me? 21st century technology, browsing the web. So useless, all that it did was just list out major conservatives for me, but I think it's a little bit my fault. I'm going to adjust this a little bit. Okay, so I just did a little bit of refining of our prompt here. Hopefully this will help us get what I'm asking for. Can you do a quick search of 10 random websites of major conservative politicians, then compile the data you read on them into three points of information? One, what percentage of these websites mention the word freedom? Two, what percentage of these websites mention freedom as the most important value? Three, on average, how many times did the word freedom appear on these websites? All right. Hopefully we get a little... The thing about these chatbots here is it's kind of like talking to a genie, right? If there is room for it to misinterpret what you are asking for, it will effectively. And uh, you have to be very specific. So let's see if it has actually done what I've asked it to. All right, so after some faffing, finally got a prompt which was able to deliver me some, some of what I wanted here. So just to read it to you, can you do a quick search of 10 random websites of major American Republican politicians? That was the big thing, I think. That's why I was able to finally get it to do what I needed to. I guess 10 was too much to ask because it, it said it could only do four due to time constraints. So that's a little bit less than I thought it would, but the results are still extremely interesting nonetheless. So let's go over them. So it says that it looked up Senator Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And out of all of them, all of them mentioned the word freedom 100%. Although it says, interestingly, none of them explicitly mentioned freedom as the most important value. However, freedom was emphasized in the context of policy discussions or in the description of their work or values. So obviously em emphasized very heavily. And this is the exact number of word freedom appeared. It was not determined due to the lack of features and count features on the search tool. However, it is consistently present in various contexts in the website. So then I just asked it to, of the sites you did search, tell me what you found. So are you guys ready? Or who, how many times the word freedom appears on these various websites and who has the most amount of freedom on their website. Okay. So Ted Cruz has 10 instances of the word freedom. Marco Rubio has eight. Rand Paul has 10. And Marjorie Taylor Greene only has eight. Amazingly, I thought Marjorie Taylor Greene would have been like 35 or something like that. And then does a quick math for us. Anyway, turns out to be nine on average. <laughs> nine times the word freedom is mentioned on the average conservative politician's website. So that was just a fun little exercise for you guys. Just the big takeaway here, obviously, conservatives emphasize freedom. But my whole point here is that particularly when it comes to issues around, it used to be back when I was a kid, around gay marriage, they would jettison this notion of freedom in obviously 
favoring arguments of tradition, usually with the, the argument that they made in terms of gay marriage was marriage, one man, one wife, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, that is ancient history now in our current political context. But they've just really taken the same arguments they used in the 90s and retooled them against trans people for the 2020s. But my point here being is that if freedom is really your most important value, then why don't people have the freedom to marry who they want to? And I think that for most conservatives, even in the Republican base, I think the ship has sailed on that one. I think even among the base, it was like last poll I saw was like 52 48. So it's still within the Republican debate, still a very divisive issue. That being said, the majority of Republicans now favor gay marriage, but now the next battle on the frontier is around trans people and is around trans rights. But ultimately, the exact same argument applies to trans people as it did to gay marriage, which is the freedom argument, which is that if an adult chooses to get gender-affirming care, if an adult chooses to transition from one gender to another, why do you care? Why does it matter to you? It's not your life. It impacts you in no way, shape, or form. The only time that it may impact you is when you encounter a trans person in real life and you might have to use their preferred pronouns when presented with them. And it's not even a question of, of have to. It's just what is polite in our society? What is common decency? What is common respect? There's this idea that left-wing people want people thrown in re-education camps if they misgender people. It's totally ridiculous, total nonsense. It's just an extremely rude and disrespectful thing to do to somebody. And if you do it to somebody, don't be surprised when people call you out for being rude and disrespectful. My wife, for example, she has what you, I guess, call a dead name where she officially changed her first name, not just her last name when we got married. But when we got married, she also changed officially her first name from what it used to be. It used to be a more Indian sounding version of her name. And then she officially changed it to a more anglicized version because that was what she identified with. And that is what everyone had called her. And that was the name that she vastly preferred. And everyone, including her parents, were calling her by her anglicized name. So she got to the point where she just hated seeing her old Indian name on like official documents and stuff like that. So when she got her name changed over after the marriage, she changed both her names at the same time, both her first and last name simultaneously. So now her old Indian name no longer appears on any documents or anything like that. It's now just her new name, her preferential name. And at this point, there is literally no other reason to refer to my wife by her old name, by her dead name, other than if you were trying to disrespect her or trying to hurt her or trying to insult her. Because she vastly prefers her English name, her anglicized name, over her Indian one. And it's similar, I would imagine, for a trans person, except more powerful, because for my wife, it was a name that represented a cultural identity. But for a trans person, obviously, the name represents and affirms your gender identity. So there's no reason 
you'd ever refer to a trans person by their dead name unless you were deliberately trying to disrespect them, unless you were deliberately trying to hurt them. There's no way you can dead name in good faith. So yeah, people have the freedom to change their name in our society. Turns out it's a pretty normal thing and a thing that the overwhelming majority of people out there respect. But for conservatives, you know, that, that freedom is too far, too far. I could keep coming up with examples, but it would just be saying the same thing over and over and over again, which is that conservatives violate their own ideological precepts in order to justify and propagate their hatred. And now I would like to move into the last topic of the episode today. We are going to talk about the absolute hysteria and mania that has bubbled forth around trans people. Because I am sure that at the end of the day, that when it comes to it, most conservatives probably say something along the lines of they hate Pride or they hate Pride Month because it's being forced on them or more to the point here, being forced on their children. And we know that this is pure delusion, that every time that they have been asked to present some sort of evidence in regards to what they like to call grooming or trans people somehow hurting kids or being sexual predators or any other nonsense they want to dream up of, they can never find it. It's never there. What usually ends up happening, I've <laughs> had this happen to me personally in my life, having this argument face-to-face -face with people, which is that they will come up with something like, my wife's friend's a teacher, and they say that this kind of transing of the kids is happening in schools or something like that. And let me tell you guys something. Here's a tip. Nothing will piss off a conservative more than dismissing their anecdotal evidence because they got, they got nothing, right? They got nothing once you just dismiss it. And at the time, I basically told the guy, yeah, I, I don't believe you. I don't think that that actually happened. I think you just made that up or heard it on Joe Rogan or something like that. Oh my God, did he get tricked? Because here's the thing about anecdotal evidence. It is destroyed on so many levels so easily. And I, I, if you're ever arguing, this is one thing that serves. They really love anecdotal evidence. And I like to attack anecdotal evidence on its core rather than try and engage with it. Because one of the ways that anecdotal evidence becomes so weak is it's effectively rendered null and void by anecdotal evidence of the opposing perspective. For example, I could have said something like in that instance that, well, my wife's friend is also a teacher and she says that it isn't happening. So which one are you going to believe? Which of course brings us to an impasse because you just have to basically play. He said, she said, whose anecdotal evidence has the most amount of weight? Then of course, there's the fact that Anecdotal evidence is really just hearsay, right? Not going to be able to convict somebody of a crime based on anecdotal evidence, right? What anecdotal evidence is, is it is the jumping off point for an actual investigation to gather real evidence, right? Do you guys remember when old Joe on his podcast, what was it, six months ago or something like that? He brought up this story about a litter box being like installed in one of the bathrooms in the school and his, his reasoning for this was that he heard it from his wife's friend who's a teacher so this must be true and what happened was is this started off in an actual investigation in these texas school systems and these texas schools 
to see is this actually happening? Is there any evidence of this litter box being in school bathrooms? And of course they found nothing. There's no, nothing was turned up. Turned out it was all just a nonsense story that people like to spread around to validate their own worldviews. The anecdotal evidence was the springboard for the actual investigation, which in turn couldn't find any real evidence. But I want to get back here to the children because somebody's got to think about them, right? Because this is one of the favorite arguments that the conservatives love to deploy. Won't somebody please think about the children? And it's really tough, like, not to laugh at the absurdity of this whole thing. Because, of course, we had recently, we had that whole brouhaha, kerfuffle, whatever you want to say, controversy regarding the LA Dodgers. If you guys don't know, real brief cliff notes, they hired, I'm not exactly sure in entirely what capacity and for how long and for when, but the, effectively they, they hired for a promotion. I believe they're drag queens, like dresses, nuns and stuff like that. And this upset people in the Catholic community. And then they go out, they do these, do these like chants, oh, protect our children, protect our children. And it's like, bruh, really? Really? Because let, let me tell you something. If, if I'm in a situation where I have two people who are going to watch my kids, one is a priest and the other is a drag queen, if you actually care about your kids, you're going to choose the drag queen every single time. Because the drag queen doesn't have a very long and documented history of child sex abuse probably at this point, numbering in the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of children. It's just wild to me how little self-awareness these people have, or at least how willfully ignorant they are of the issues within their own temple. Maybe you ought to, uh, to quote one of your boys, clean your room before you start to criticize other people. But anyway, here's the thing, right? And I and here's another personal conversation I had with somebody about this issue once. And uh, they come to me and they're like, what are you going to do if your kid comes to you one day and his daddy, I think that I'm a boy. What are you going to do about that? What are you going to say? And what I'm going to say is that if I'm in that position where... I haven't noticed the indicators that my child is questioning their gender long before they've actually come to me and said it, then I've really failed as a parent. Because unlike the conservatives seem to think, this stuff just doesn't come out of nowhere. The child doesn't wake up one day and then decides it's going to start questioning its gender. This is stuff that happens particularly long before a child will articulate it to you. And there's going to be signs which manifest itself before, again, they actually have the courage to tell you as a parent what's going on. So if I haven't noticed that long beforehand, again, I've seriously failed as a parent. But to answer the question for real, you fucking support them. They're your kids. You know, that question, right? There are people that that is literally their nightmare. They stay up at night like thinking about that, oh my God, that could happen to me. My child could question their gender. Oh my God. I mean, like build up this ridiculous nightmare scenario in their head. But here's the real thing about this whole conversation, right? 
even if you believe in this whole ridiculous conspiracy theory about them trying to transfer kids, or even if you're like a full-on transphobe, don't believe that trans people exist. Ultimately, the best thing for you to do is to talk to your kids about the existence of trans people before obviously this mysterious, I guess, whatever teacher, literally Marx is going to raise up out of the ground and start teaching your kids a woke feminist theory. No, even if you do believe that, you should talk to your kids about the existence of trans people because then obviously they're not going to be blindsided by whatever this zombie Marxist figure that is going to be telling your kids to start questioning their gender or whatever you believe. Because here's the thing, guys, reality exists and trans people exist, gay people exist, and your child might run into those people in the real world where they live. And what are you going to do then? Are you going to like, oh no, there's a trans person. She'll kill Timmy's eyes. No, don't look at them. You can't shield your kids from reality. Sooner or later, he's going to see two women kissing and he's going to ask questions about it. Or she. So the obvious thing to do is preempt that and let them know that reality exists. So that when they are encountered with someone who is a member of the LGBTQ plus community, they are going to treat them with respect and they're not going to be confused. They're not going to wonder what the hell is happening because they understand the fact that not everybody lives the same lifestyle as their mom and dad. And that's perfectly okay. Let's say my child, like I've completely, totally dropped the ball here. And all of a sudden my kid blindsides me with this question that they're questioning their gender. Here's what you don't do. If you are one of these Matt Walsh types, you don't, freak the fuck out and be like man man god dang you're thinny you hear me you hear me because not only are you probably going to traumatize your kid they're going to learn that if they want to ever get a reaction out of you because let me tell you guys kids like to get reactions out of their parents even if it's a negative one if they ever want to get a reaction out of you all they got to tell dad is that they're questioning their gender and he's going to lose his freaking mind. But if you let your child know about the existence of trans people beforehand, they're going to have a much easier time coming to terms and understanding what's happening. But the thing is, a lot of these psychopaths seem to think that just letting your children know that gay people exist that trans people exist, the existence of the LGBTQ plus community in and of itself is grooming. And I don't understand how delusional you have to be to think that letting your kids know that LGBTQ plus people exist is tantamount to child abuse. But I, I got to imagine you got to be pretty delusional. You got to be pretty divorced from reality. Because again, going back to our, our point, reality exists. My kid already knows all her friends parents she already knows when they're coming in and she can already point out everyone's parents and everything like that what happens if you put your kid in daycare and one of her friends or his friends 
has two dads and you know his dads alternate on picking him up your kid is going to know <laughs> that his friend has two dads and doesn't have a mom and a dad they're going to figure that out very quickly because guess what gay people can have kids trans people can have kids and sometimes those kids might need to go to daycare. They might need to drop them off at daycare. Well, what is the solution to this, conservatives? Like, do you just think that we should exclude them from society entirely? That we shouldn't allow them to put their kids in daycare because your kids might see that they exist? Just delusion. Just pure and total delusion. And here's the thing, right? Like, when you obviously talk to your kids about the fact that LGBTQ plus people exist. You don't talk about the sexual aspects of the relationship. Because guess what, homeboys? Relationships have a whole lot more facets of the sexual aspect. Definitely not, in my opinion, the most important aspect of a relationship. Obviously, it is important, but certainly not the most important. A lot of relationships are bonded on common goals and common values and a love for one another not just a sexual attraction. My relationship with my wife goes far beyond just a sexual attraction. And that goes for anyone else's significant other of any relationship. So it's pretty easy to talk about relationships without bringing up sex or those kind of aspects. Because I do agree that young kids are not ready to talk about and explore those kind of aspects of their lives. There's a reason why kids can't consent because they don't understand what having sex actually entails. They cannot physically grasp all that it entails. So therefore they're incapable of consent. So absolutely, we do not need to talk about those aspects of relationship with young kids at all. They don't need to be in any part of the conversation. The fact of the matter that you think that just by bringing them up, they will be, to me, really shows a person's ignorance. It really shows their misunderstanding because what it reveals is that they believe that inherently people in the LGBTQ plus community cannot have a relationship beyond sex. Inherently, they believe that their relationship is only based on sexual attraction and that is it. And I think that's it's pretty fucked up personally. I was talking to someone on why they think that their kids shouldn't know that trans people exist. And it was vibes, really. I, I just don't think kids should know about that stuff or need to know about that stuff. And to me, it would be, that's like saying, I think that kids don't need to know that bees are responsible for flower pollination. I guess it's technically true. Kids don't really need to know about that kind of stuff. But it's a facet of reality. And there's no real reason not to tell your kids that it exists. But obviously he has the right to tell his kids whatever he wants. I just think that it's weird not to let someone know about reality. It seems like you're ill-equipping them to deal with the world that they're going to be thrust into at some point in their lives. So anyway, that's it for me. Anyway, that's it for this topic. There is a lot more that I could say, but I realize that I'm going along as it is, and I'm getting quite hungry. But anyway, Matt Walsh, stay the fuck away from my kids, and let's move into our feel-good story. So here's our feel-good story, a little bit different from usual. This is a story that I've seen in a couple like mag magazines and articles and websites a couple months ago, but this one's in Peering and 
science alert. This one's just a week ago. Although, like I said, I'm pretty sure the story is fairly old. And it is evolution keeps making crabs and nobody knows why. And I don't know if this is a feel-good story. For me, personally, it's a feel-good story because I like crabs. I think they're super cool creatures. I've always thought they're super cool creatures and not just crabs, just crustaceans in general, mainly crabs and lobsters. I've always thought that they were, personally, I always thought it was like the pincers that were really cool. I think they drew me in as a kid and I never quite lost my affinity and interest for them. Plus, I grew up on the, on the ocean. I grew up on the ocean coast and I have very fond, nostalgic memories of going to the beaches and flipping over rocks and finding little tiny crabs and that kind of crap. In any case, let us read on about why crabs are so evolutionarily advantageous. Our planet's convoluted history of evolving life has spawned countless weird and wonderful creatures. But none excite or divide biologists and taxonomists quite like crabs. When research attempted to reconcile the evolutionary history of crabs and all their rockerous glory in a study published in 2021, they arrived at the conclusion that the defining features of crabbiness have evolved at least five times in the past 25 million years. Why evolution keeps crafting and shafting a crab-like body remains but a mystery, though evolution must be doing something right in fashioning these crabby creatures time and time again. There are thousands of crab species, which thrive in almost every habitat on Earth, from coral reefs to abyssal plains to creeks, caves, and forests. Crabs also boast an impressive display of sizes. The smallest pea crab measures just millimeters, while the largest, the Japanese spider crab, spans nearly four meters, around 12 feet from claw to claw. With their species' richness and extravagant array of body shapes and fossil records, crabs are an ideal group to study trends in biodiversity through time. But finding some order in the chaos is going to be a challenge. Crabs have long stumped taxonomists who have invariably misclassified the species as true or false crabs due to their striking similarities. Besides figuring out where the species belong on the tree of life, Understanding exactly how many times evolution has crafted the crab-like body and why could reveal something what drives this convergent evolution. There has also been some kind of evolutionary advantage to this crab shape. As is with many subjects, evolutionary biologists have plenty of ideas, but no firm answers. To make a start, trio of researchers combined data on crab morphology, their behavior and natural history, from living species to fossils and identified gaps in the genetic data which might help resolve the missing evolutionary puzzle. Almost half of the branches on the crab tree of life remain dark. Most carcinicized crabs have developed hard calcified shells to protect themselves from predators, a clear advantage. But then some crabs have abandoned this protection for reasons unknown. Walking sideways, as silly as it seems, makes crabs supremely agile able to make a speedy exit in either direction without losing sight of the predator should one appear. But sideways walking is not observed in all carcinicized lineages, and some uncarcinicized hermit crabs can walk sideways too. Yet some crabs have evolved outsized claws to become shell-crushing predators in an ecological arms race can also be fully explained in the timing or success in the early crab evolution. Like with anything in science, nothing is ever settled, and evolution will only continue along on its merry way. 
Though with increasing amounts of genetic information on the living and fossilized crab species, rest assured taxonomists are steadily piecing together what makes a crab a crab. This will allow us to resolve multiple origins and losses of crab body forms through time and identify the timing and origin of key evolutionary novelties. More than that, studying crabs provides tantalizing prospect for evolutionary sluice. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so yeah. Crab evolution is cool because it goes back a long way in our biological history and lots of different types of crabs existed. It seems to be a very clearly successful evolutionary body type. And due to this fact, yeah, lots of different variations exist and have existed for a long time. One of nature's most successful body types. And that's, that's cool by me. Like I said, I like crabs. Crabs are cool. They always make, they also make me think of Kenshi and the crab raiders who are obsessed with crabs. I, I understand their obsession. They're cool little critters and they taste freaking delicious too. But one of the things I, I should have found the other one I was reading, it was on a different site besides this one, because it had a little bit more in terms of what the actual advantages of the crab bodies are. One thing that they mentioned is like the, the round body, it's more advantageous in comparison to a lobster. So a lot of crabs are the superior crustacean, in my opinion, both in terms of taste and evolutionary biology, because the tail kind of useless, whereas without the tail, the crab is able to be much more agile and has a lot less surface area for someone to attack it on. Plus they can regenerate limbs, which is just freaking awesome. Anyway, enough about crabs. Really, I just wanted to have an excuse to talk about crabs in an episode. So that's why I chose this story. So with that, I've gone way over time, guys, and I am also getting to be extremely hungry. So I'm going to have to wrap it up. And I want to thank you guys for watching. But this has been to Comrade. Signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care.